Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Eric Mingle, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad to be gathered here this morning. If you're new here, a special welcome to you. Uh, if it's your first Sunday, we'd love to talk to you right after the church. Right after church, we've got a, a contact table right outside. We'd love to give you a gift and get to know you a little bit more. Well, it's February 11th, and it feels like, um, you know, June 1st with the 78-degree uh, weather outside. Uh, but February 11th means that we're just a few days away from the beginning of Lent. And so no surprise, the lectionary has us reflecting this morning on the call of Jesus the call to self-denial, and the call to taking up our cross. But it also has us reflecting on the transfiguration of Jesus up on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. Not, not two stories that we normally put together, but certainly two stories that cannot be separated. The first story is about the cost of discipleship. And as I will try to explain, the second story is about the glory of discipleship. So per usual, I'm going to make three simple observations from this passage, and then I'm going to make a few reflections on how Lent can help us respond to both. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive in. Almighty God, we do love you, and we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, God. Uh, Your word, God, is the way that we behold your glory in the face of Christ, Lord, so that as we open it, we pray that you would help us to see him clearly, to hear his voice Uh, clearly, God, and that we may know your perfect and pleasing will, and that by your grace we may obey it and follow it, bearing fruit to your glory, our joy, and the life of the world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so as I said, this passage, uh, again, sort of like two stories going on here, is about the cost of discipleship and the glory of discipleship. And there are three things that we need to see in order to understand that, in order to understand how they are connected. And the first thing that I want us to notice is that, according to Jesus, the cross comes before the glory. Or as you maybe have heard it said before, the cross comes before the crown. Uh, Look again with me at Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 34. Not sure. Great. Uh, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Okay, so take up your cross and follow me. Very familiar terms, uh, words. I'm sure that you have heard these before. It also seems really straightforward, right? Uh, Especially if you know what a cross is all about, which all of the disciples certainly did. But as Mark tells us, they didn't understand. They didn't understand before, during, or even after when they're on the way back down the mountain what Jesus was talking about. So what is going on in this passage? Well, it's actually in the preceding passage that we need to remember or reflect. Uh, We didn't read it this morning, but in this passage, the one right before, Peter makes this great confession that Jesus is the Christ. Some thought he was John the Baptist, back from the dead. Others thought he was maybe Elijah, back from heaven. 
Others, maybe he was just another prophet. But Peter knew that Jesus was none of these things. Or we might say he knew that he was more than these things. He knew that Jesus was the Christ, meaning that Jesus was the king, the long-awaited Messiah who was coming to deliver them from evil and to set up God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. And so at this point, when Peter makes this great confession, Jesus praises him and nicknames him the rock on which he would build his church. I wish someone would have given me that nickname in middle school. (laughs) It was a great moment for Peter. Unfortunately, it lasted all about three seconds. Since no sooner did he make this great confession that he stuck his foot in his mouth and received one of the harshest rebukes possible when Jesus called him Satan. And just like that, what was a great moment for Peter became a terrible moment. But why did it happen? Why did Jesus call him Satan? It happened because right after Peter made this great confession that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus began to speak plainly to them, plainly to his disciples, about his coming death. Remember, he'd been speaking in riddles and he'd been speaking in parables, but now Mark really points this out. He began to speak plainly about his plan to go to Jerusalem, to suffer many things, to be rejected by the religious establishment, and to die. In other words, none of the things that the Messiah was supposed to do. In fact, quite the opposite. And so Peter promptly lost his mind. He pulled Jesus aside, the one one he just confessed to be the world's true Lord and King, and he rebuked him. He rebuked the King. And so naturally, Jesus counter-rebuked him, saying, get behind me, Satan, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, let's be clear. Jesus was not calling Peter the actual devil, Uh, nor, nor was he even suggesting that he was possessed by a demon. Jesus and Paul both defend the idea that no one can confess that Jesus is Lord without the help of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't take the edge off of the rebuke, does it? As Father John Bear says, Satan is anyone who gets between Jesus and his cross. Satan is anyone or or anything who seeks to get between Jesus and his cross. Because the cross was not a hindrance to Jesus' mission, the cross was his mission. To the Romans, yes, it was an instrument of death, but for Jesus, it was an instrument for life. To the world, it meant torture, but to Jesus, it meant healing. Rome used it to humiliate anyone who defied her authority. Jesus used it to establish his. And so to separate Jesus from his cross wouldn't have saved his life as Peter intended to do. But in a very counterintuitive way, it would have short-circuited it. For the cross was his destiny. The cross was his throne. The cross was his crown but not just his, ours too. Look at what he says in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, for many of us, those are familiar words, but what do they mean? And and more than that, what do they look like when we put them into practice? Let's start with what it doesn't mean. 
It doesn't mean just doing hard things, like putting up with your in-laws, or working a really demanding job, or having to go to some work conference all day. All of those may require a lot of sacrifice, but it's not what Jesus is talking about. That is not carrying our cross. It also doesn't mean hating yourself or needing to make yourself a doormat for the world to walk all over. In fact, carrying your cross isn't about you at all. Rather, it's about Jesus. It's about imitating Jesus and loving others, others, the way that Jesus has loved you. Which means that carrying your cross is really about becoming the kind of person who would lay down their life for others, even if the others happen to be their enemies. Let me say that again. Carrying your cross is really about becoming the kind of person who would lay down their life for others, even if the others happen to be your enemy. Now, I know that sounds extreme. There's not a lot of opportunities for us to lay down our lives for our enemies, especially living in such a privileged place like Houston. But what does it look like for us to put that into practice? Obviously, it could look like a, a number of things, of course, but as we heard in the New Testament reading this morning, the Apostle Paul says that it begins by doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. That, of course, isn't quite the same thing as laying down your life for someone, but the idea is this. If you do that enough times, you will become the kind of person who will lay down their life for others. In other words, to become that kind of person, you have to make a habit out of putting others' interests before your own. Years ago, there was a, a great ministry called I Am Second. They made all these great testimonial videos. You know, the, the idea is that Jesus is first and I am second. I, I don't want to upstage that ministry, but I really wish it would have been called I Am Third <laughs> because it's Jesus, others, and then myself. And also, Paul doesn't say, don't think of yourself at all. He says, let us be considerate of their interests as well as ours. So we're part of that equation. What God does in you, he also wants to do. What God does through you, he also wants to do in you. You matter. But the way that you matter and become the kind of person God is calling you to be is by putting him first, others second, and then yourself third. Does that make sense? Okay. In other words, bearing the cross is not a one-time event for the disciple of Jesus. Rather, it is a daily decision over a lifetime of imitating Christ until we are perfectly conformed to his image. You've heard us maybe talk about this before. Salvation is a process. You were saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved if we persevere in Christ, imitating him in his death. The cross comes before the crown, and that, like it or not, is what the cost of discipleship is all about. Okay, the second thing we need to see from this passage is that the glory of Jesus's transfiguration is a glory that we've been invited to share. Look with me again at verse 2, starting in Mark 9. 
Mark says that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, this word transfiguration is an interesting word. It's actually only used about four times in the New Testament, and it usually means to experience a radical transformation. But it can also mean to unveil or reveal something that is already there or something that is already true, as in the case with Jesus. And so Mark says that when Jesus was transfigured, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And in Matthew's account, he has that his face shone like the sun. Mark also says that Jesus' favorite way to identify himself, his favorite title, was that of the Son of Man. And when you combine those two together, his luminous appearance and his self-identification as the Son of Man, it becomes abundantly clear who Jesus is. He's the one the prophet Daniel wrote about from our Old Testament lesson this morning. He's the one who ascends to the Ancient of Days, just as he ascended up the mountain. He's the one who receives dominion, glory, and a kingdom, just as he was glorified before the disciples. And he's the one who finally exercises dominion over the beasts, the enemies of God's people, just as he had done in the wilderness when he faced off with the devil. In other words, Peter was right. <laughs> Jesus is the Christ. He is the world's true Lord and King. Peter was wrong about some things, okay? But he's not an idiot. He got this right. And the glory revealed in the transfiguration of Jesus proves it. But that's not all it proves. Mark says that when Jesus was transfigured, that Moses and Elijah were there. But Luke adds one little detail that Mark and even Matthew don't. Luke says that Moses and Elijah were glorified with Jesus. Think about that. Moses and Elijah were glorified with Jesus, meaning that the glory revealed in Jesus' transfiguration is a glory that he wants to share. Now, I know that sounds odd. Most of us growing up in, you know, the South and some sort of quasi-reform culture uh, have always heard something quite the opposite. If God is glorious, then we are not. And if we want God to be more glorious, then we need to become correspondingly less glorious. Otherwise, what do we do? We rob him of his glory. What's he going to do? But the problem with this kind of thinking is that it treats God's glory as a zero-sum game. In fact, it treats all of his attributes as a zero-sum game if we think of it in these competitive terms. But as Peter Lightheart explains in his commentary, God's glory is not a zero-sum game. It's an infinite-sum game. Because God is an infinite God who was glorified, not by hoarding all the glory to himself, but by glorifying his creation. 
God is not a glory hoarder. You are. I am. God is not. And we know this not only from Scripture, but from our own relationships too. Parents are glorified when their children reflect their wisdom. Children are glorified when their parents reflect their innocence, purity, and faith, childlike faith. And even friends, good friends, not glory-hoarding friends. Even friends are glorified when they reflect one another's integrity, confidence, and trust. And so likewise, God is glorified when his children reflect his glory because that is what he created them to do, to be like him and to share in his glory. And so just as he shared it with Moses and Elijah, he shares it with us when we take up our cross and we follow him. The cross comes before the crown, but it does indeed lead to a crown. And that's what the glory of discipleship is all about. The question then is how? How do we share in the glory of Jesus? And that brings us to the final observation. Jesus wants us to share in his glory, but in order to do so, we must listen to him. To him and not to anyone else. Look one last time with me at verse 5 in Mark 9. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. He was scared. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is not my point, but I think it's a really interesting observation. You'll notice that these are the same words God spoke over Jesus at his baptism. As if to almost say, that was his baptism, and this is his confirmation. There's probably a lot there, but I'm not smart enough to tell you. What I will tell you, though, is this. Mark says that Peter wanted to make for Jesus three tents which sounds dumb. And Mark kind of makes it sound like he's dumb. And we should probably trust Mark because Peter's the one giving him this story, okay? But I do think that we can overread what those words are saying maybe to us. As we established before, Peter sometimes gets things wrong, but he's not an idiot. Sometimes he gets things right. And in this case, He does both. Mark says that he wanted to build three tents for Jesus and his heavenly guests, which sounds silly until you understand that the word translated tents is the same word we we translate as tabernacle. Peter wants to build three tabernacles for Jesus. And here's why. Because that's what you do when you encounter God's glory on a mountain. You build a tabernacle, just like they did in Exodus. If you're in Jerusalem, you build a temple. If you're on a mountain, you build a tabernacle. You build a tabernacle, a glorified tent to host the Lord of glory. Not because he needs one, but because from the beginning, 
God has always wanted to be near his people. He's always wanted to dwell in their midst. And Peter knows this. And so his impulse is right, but his timing is wrong. As is with many men. Why is his timing wrong? Because the cross comes before the crown. But Peter still doesn't get it. He still thinks that now is the time to take on Rome. That now is the time. But he's wrong. Now is the time for the cross. And so his suggestion, whether consciously or not, to build three tabernacles on the mountain and to get ready to rumble is just one more attempt to separate Jesus from his cross and to resist what Jesus has already made clear. The glory, the glory of God's kingdom coming on earth as in heaven only comes after suffering, rejection, and death. And so as if to put an exclamation point on what Christ has already said, God breaks the silence a second time to confirm what he already declared at Jesus' baptism. That this is his beloved son. That he is the Messiah. But that what he says about suffering, death, and glory is true. And that if Peter wants to share in this glory of Christ, and if we want to share in this glory of Christ, then we, we must learn to listen to him. We must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. The good news for us is that's what Lent is all about. In a wonderful little essay titled The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis wrote these words. It's a great summary of this passage we're reading. In fact, it's so much better than anything I've said. So follow along. Meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is a Monday morning. A cleft has opened in the pitiless walls of the world, and we are invited to follow our great captain inside. The following him is, of course, the essential point. And the point that I'm trying to make is this one. The following him is the essential point, but it's following him that takes time, sacrifice, and a community to do well, which is what Lent is all about. For those of you who are new to the Anglican tradition, Lent is a 40-day season leading up to Easter, where we as a church practice doing what we've heard spoken of here today, where we practice denying ourselves taking up our cross in hopes that we too may share in the resurrection glory of the risen Christ. Becoming people who love like Jesus is a daily decision and it takes place over a lifetime to become. And that's why we need time, sacrifice, and a community to do it well. And so in obedience to God's command to listen to Jesus for the next five weeks, we're going to continue in Mark's gospel by taking a look at five different ways that we can take up our cross and learn to love like Jesus. And as we do, it is my prayer that we will find ourselves not only counting the cost of discipleship, but reveling in its glory as well. He's calling us to Jerusalem to bear his cross with him. 
He's calling us up the mountain to share in his glory. Let us joyfully follow him there. Let's pray. O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant that we, beholding the faith, beholding by faith the lights of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org.